Lasso. So this week we turn to the close application of mindfulness to the mind. And it would be good to return, kind of just refresh our memory of meaning of mindfulness. The term classic Buddhist philosophy, psychology, entails a, a holding in mind of something with which one is already familiar. So you can't practice mindfulness of something you've never ever seen before. You can gain a fresh acquaintance when you, once you've gained the acquaintance with, or made, made some contact with, ascertained, then you can practice mindfulness, because now, now it's familiar. So it's almost like you have to be introduced first, and then you can practice mindfulness afterwards, because, of course, the primary connotation of the term, sati in, in Pali, smriti, Sanskrit, temba, Tibetan, is recollection. Well, you can't recollect anything you didn't collect in the first place. So it's recollection, right? And so, with this in mind, here we have the close application of mindfulness, to the mind. So in each of these cases, the body feelings and now the mind, it's really quite analogous to taking a specimen and putting it to, between two glass plates and fixing it firmly. You, you, the last thing, if you're looking through a microscope, because I have done so, of course, I think we all have, the last thing you want is to have it jiggling around. And then you just, you couldn't, you couldn't make any interesting observation, especially, especially through a microscope. So you'd want to make sure it's, it's well mounted, that is pressed between the plates, for example, like a drop of water with little amoebas and so forth in it. And so get it firmly fixed, right? And then you want to make sure it's very well lit through a microscope. So There's your stability. There's your vividness. And then bring it into sharp, sharp, clear focus. And then you're really, as you're gazing through a microscope, you're really closely applying mindfulness to something you've seen before, but you're sustaining that flow of mindfulness. You're, you're holding it in mind so you can take a good long look, so to speak. A good long look. Hold it in mind. Or in terms of kind of doing this in a short term, it's called working memory, where you'll take something and hold it in mind for a matter of seconds. And, but, and it's quite a interesting concept uh, that you hold it in mind in, in working memory, and then while holding in mind, you can, if you wish, manipulate it, work with it, uh, play with it. So you don't just keep it static. And a study was done quite recently showing that there are, there are methods for developing working memory this is straight psychology now, in a very brief, very brief foray outside of the Buddhism. Uh, but I found it quite interesting. And that is by engaging in exercises, mental training, to develop your working memory, within a matter of a couple of months, you can increase your IQ by up to 20, 20 points. And all the time I was growing up, we always heard IQ is locked in. You get your IQ measured when you're in high school, maybe, and then that's your number. It's kind of like your social security number. It just doesn't change, right? Well, that's one more area where they got it wrong. So many areas, that, like the 20th century when it came to the mind was really big on, on the notion of the mind, be, the mind and brain being static. No new, no new neurons, for example. That, would, that went unquestioned for about a century until a man I met, Fred Gage, at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, discovered, well, that's not true. There is such a thing as neurogenesis. I believe it's the hippocampus, which is kind of the, the generator of new, new, new neurons by the hundreds of millions. And then you ask interesting questions. Okay, what are the circumstances under which fresh neurons are generated? So there's a really fascinating branch of um, one more area of neuroplasticity. Coming back here, though, coming back. So working memory, whether you're holding it just for a matter of seconds or whether you develop shamatha, and then maybe you hold it for a matter of minutes or hours, but you hold it in mind, and if you wish to work with it, probe into it, investigate it, analyze it. You've got there between the, the glass plates, so you can really probe deeply, right? 
Well, of course. I mean, it kind of goes without saying. For that, the more developed you are in terms of attention skills, namely shamatha, then the more rigorous, refined, replicable, uh, sophisticated, penetrating and incisive will be your actual investigation of that which you are holding in mind, that which you're holding in mind, bearing in mind, right? So it's such that the tether of your attention is fastened to the object of mindfulness, and the tether, the tether is mindfulness itself. So you got your attention. How do you keep it on the object? What did it with the tether with the rope of mindfulness? It's really classic, classic Buddhist teachings, and it goes across. I've seen the same metaphors used in the Theravada tradition as well as the Indo-Tibetan. So having said that, now we move into interesting territory. In a, in some ways, very familiar. Number one, we've already gone through the the, the Chitta Satipatthana. But then more underlying that, we've already spent some time, and we'll spend some more time this afternoon, in this practice, which is basically getting the specimen between the slides so that you can view it from a stable position, even if it's moving. like the little, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a neat analogy. I haven't really thought of it before. But even if the little amoebas are moving around and squiggling and doing all kinds of interesting things, as you're gazing through the eyepiece, you're not going, ooh, 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 you know. You keep still, let the, let, let the amoebas move, but don't jitterbug with them, right? There you go, you've heard that before. Stillness of your awareness, observing the activities, the amoebas of your mind, and don't get infected. Um, you know, so the metaphor is there. Well, of course, the method, the perfect method for this is settling the mind in its natural state, a.k.a. also known Nangrik Lamdukyawa, taking appearances and awareness as the path, and then the third one, Mazapesem Lamdukyapa, taking the impure mind as the path. All and Semlemipishine, Shamata focus on the mind. That's the Galupa terminology. All refer exactly to the same practice, with the same methods, the same purpose. There it is. But it's just that. It's, it's basically before you engage in the investigation, the probing into really as a, as a let's say, a, a cell biologist. Or maybe your study, your your profession is to study, you know, single-celled organisms, primitive organisms. Uh, the first thing you need to know, do in that profession would be, I mean, in terms of sheer technique, do you know how to put it between the plates? Do you know how to get it stabilized there? Do you know how to get the right light and and focus and so forth, so that when you look, it is there in a steady fashion, steady and clear. That's shamatha. That's shamatha through a microscope, right? And so here we are, looking now into the space of the mind for all of the little creepy-cawly things that come out of that. But what we've been doing thus far is basically just learning how to use the microscope, right? The microscope of your own mind or the telescope, whatever metaphor you like. But that we can maintain that stillness of our awareness, keep the object in focus. That is, we're not drifting off to the sensory fields. We're not drifting off to the reference of the thoughts, images, and so forth. We're staying here and now, and we have a lock on the object, space of the mind, whatever arises, we're able to sustain that in a clear and, and interestingly enough, in, as an inside job, in an objective fashion, right? Because it is objective. You're observing it without, hopefully without bias, that is, without likes and dislikes, just as you, you'd be a, a ridiculous cell biologist if you say, oh, but I don't like those, those amoebas, kill those, I want to watch these. You know, if it was just out of whimsy, that would be ridiculous. So in a similar fashion here, we, we're seeking to observe whatever comes up without preference, without bias, right? And then, of course, without the overlay, without the conceptual projections upon it. So that already, the kind of the sheer contemplative technology of learning the shamatha method of how do you focus on your mind 
pretty formidable, let alone the fact that the mind heals in the process, which is then pretty a spectacular perk or a side benefit, right? That it's not just learning something. Actually, you're healing that which you're attending to, and that's very rare. So there's a technology of it. And before we go, the, 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 go to the text, we'll return to the Bodhicharvatara. Very few verses here, but very substantial, very hardcore. What I'd like to do now is share with you something I've not shared in this retreat. Some of you are already familiar with it. Some of you maybe not. But now that we have a week for the mind, more or less, uh, then I thought, well, now's a good time to share it. And that's the gentle vas breathing. The gentle vas breathing. And it's taught in conjunction with this practice of settling the mind in its natural state. And it's not necessary. So of all the teachings I've received from multiple traditions, Nyingma, Gagyu, and Galukpa, um, and only in one text, only in one text, have I, I, have I seen this gentle vas breathing taught. So it clearly is not indispensable. Having said that, Ledap Lingba, the great teacher, the 19th century Dzogchen master who taught this, uh, did suggest it, and it's a very good practice. And having said that, it's going to be, for some of you, like counting the breaths. Some of you may find it very useful, some of you not useful from the beginning and you never like it. And some of you may not really get the hang of it early, but then get familiar with it and say, hey, this is kind of useful. Okay? So gentle vas breathing. It's not the full lung um, bumbachen or vas breathing that you use in tumo. I wouldn't teach that. If, I mean, I, I, would be, I would be disallowed from teaching it without you having uh, vajrayan empowerment. Anyway, I have been trained in it. But uh, it's a very strong practice. And again, you can see it being practiced in the, in the movie Yogis of Tibet. You can see it's pretty formidable, very demanding practice. Uh, it entails kumbhaka, restraint, and so forth. I won't go into any more detail. Suffice it to say, it's a, it's a very powerful practice, an authentic practice, of course. It's within the six yogas of Naropa, especially stems back to, to, um, to Naropa, of course. Um, but, so that's the full one to develop tumo. Okay? And then tumo as a means to realizing emptiness and the clear light nature of mind. So, pretty big deal. This gentle vas breathing is safe, it's very gentle. Uh, so if you learn it here, you practice it, the chances of this of harming you in any way are so remote that I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I'm not going to worry. Okay? And so here it is. It's very simple. So I'd like to do this so when we're doing the meditation, you don't have to try to be looking at me, which would be quite a distraction. So here's, here's a practice to be done only when you're sitting upright, not in the supine position. I would not, not, not even try it in the supine. So you're sitting upright. You really want to be having settled your body in its natural state. So with the erect posture, and then before you do so, make sure that certain that you've already settled your respiration in its natural rhythm. So the gentle vas breathing is not a, a controlling of the breath, a manipulation of the breath. You're allowing it to flow effortlessly as you did before. But with one small caveat, or one little so characteristic, and that is that as you're breathing in, and then as you breathe out, you allow there to be a fullness kind of a pot shape, like an earthen jug or a pot, right where your belly is, so we can call it a pot belly, uh, right there in the, so the, the abdomen, the lower abdomen area. And so as you're breathing in, I'm putting my hands on my abdomen just so it's a little bit more obvious, but you don't do that. You put your hands wherever you normally put them in meditation, but just to accentuate the movement of the abdomen. So here I'm sitting quite erect, and I'm just breathing in normally now. And so in doing this, so you just see, you see the obvious, no surprises here. The belly comes out, I'm leaving it nice and loose, so the sensations of the breath come down to the belly, down to the navel. 
And as they breathe out, of course, the belly falls back again. So there, 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 there is simply normal breathing. Uh, and the gentle vas breathing. So I breathe in normally again. But as I breathe out, you see the belly didn't go in. It didn't quite stay as full as it was. Here I breathe in again. Fullest, and then out. It's round. Okay? And so just a very, a teaspoon full of effort just to hold that roundness in the belly. And as you breathe out, having I've done this for a number of years now, off and on, uh, when you breathe out, you may very well, like me, if your body's like mine, you may have that sense of kind of settling, like a souffle that rises and then doesn't, and then kind of falls back in, you know. Um, so kind of a rising, but then uh, maybe not. And it kind of just settles back down. So that's just what it feels like inside. So breathing out, breathing in. And then breathing in again. The belly gets a little bit bigger as you breathe in. Not much. But as you breathe out, again, that settling sensation. Now, that it's such a simple task, it requires so little effort, that when you're first doing it, then you'll have to pay attention to it. It's a skill to be learned. But once you've learned it, it is so simple. It's, about, it's, it's simpler than riding a bicycle, which means after you've learned it, you, could, you should be able to give less attention to the abdomen and the holding of the abdomen than you would right, need to ride a bicycle. Which means then, once you've gotten the hang of this, you've gotten accustomed to it, then you should just let that, be able to let that go naturally, spontaneously, and give your full attention to the space of the mind and its events. Because this is so simple. Okay? So just, then you just kind of put it on autopilot and let it, run, let it run by itself. So now why? Why do this is, here in, in doing this, obviously, you're, you're creating a fullness in the abdominal region with, kind of speci- with the center of which is right there in the navel. And so in, hold, in having that fullness... There's just a bit more, literally, breathing space in the belly. And so any type of contraction, tightness, knots, blockages of prana associated with or or around this navel chakra, they can be loosened up just because you're giving them more space. It would be just like having a a traffic jam and then suddenly adding more lanes. And then, oh, now the traffic can flow better, right? Just because you give them more space to move. And so... This is the purpose of it. You loosen things up there. The prana flows a bit more easily. And then as it does, and, and of course you're not just sitting there breathing in this way, but also settling the mind in its natural state, because you're doing that, then the pranas will of their own accord, without any visualization, no manipulation of the breath, that you may very well feel the pranas actually converging in upon the center. And as they do so, then you might just find that they're gravitating up that is gradually just flowing like, like well-trained sheep into the fold and coming up to the heart chakra. Okay? So that's the purpose of it. A little physiological boost on the pranic level or energetic level, a little bit of a boost, a little addendum, an augmentation, be bokdun in Tibetan, uh, to help the pranas come into the center. Well, as the pranas come into the central channel, up to the heart, that will have this synergistic quality as, as your awareness helps to bring the pranas into the center, creating the circumstances so that the prana do come into the center, then from the prana side and its influence on the mind, that helps your mind also get more centered and your mind to settle into its natural state.
That's the whole of it. Okay? Doesn't get more complicated. Uh, there are two postures. Well, no, actually, the three postures you can do it. Um, standing, walking, and sitting. But for shamatha practice, standing, you might fall over. Walking, you walk into things. So by process of elimination, then just sitting. If you try to do it in the supine position, of course, I've tried it. It's just too contrived because you're having to make the belly go straight up into the air rather than just laterally. And so I, I would not recommend it. I don't think it's really dangerous, but I think it's too contrived. and uh, So don't recommend it. Okay? So all of that then is the, um, the prelude to the, to the vipassana practice of the close application of mindfulness to the mind. Now we've already done this considerably, some of you a lot, because it's maybe one of your, your main practices for the last almost seven weeks, uh, six and a half weeks now, um, in which case then you're very familiar with observing the space of the mind, and then the thoughts, the images, memories, and then perhaps the emotions and desires. So you're very well aware of seeing this come up, that come up, that come up, rather like a physiologist looking into the body and saying, oh, yep, there's the liver, yep, that certainly is the stomach, there's the, there's the, there's the heart, there's the lungs, and so forth. So just seeing them one by one, all very good, all very good for stabilizing the mind, for developing your attention and mindfulness skills. But now, of course, this being Vipassana, and this being Madhyamaka Vipassana, then the real question here is to try to bring to mind what comes to mind when we think, my mind, when any one of us thinks, my mind. Because we t- we all, I think we all have opinions about our mind. We have a sense of what our mind is. Do you have a very intelligent mind, creative mind, peaceful mind, aggressive mind, harsh, dull, um, energetic, uh, serene, etc., etc. Okay? So we've been experiencing our minds for a long time. And then if I ask, well, what do you think? Do you have the mind of a Buddha or do you have the mind of a sentient being? I think most of you would have a pretty quick answer there. You know, the one you're familiar with. And so there it is. As we have Dujum Lingba beginning his Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, beginning with taking the impure mind as the path, here Shantideva is taking the impure mind as the object to be investigated, to be understood, to be probed, to see whether or not it's really there, or whether it's just a concoction, just a concoction, a creation, a myth, a superstition, like the silly example I give, and I won't, I won't do any parody again, but think, thinking that I'm Napoleon, you know, and walking around thinking I really am Napoleon, and being very convinced of that. But then if you said, well, exactly, you know, where is this Napoleon? You know, and then, of course, not to be found. And so, do we really have a mind? There's a question. And for that, as we, as we found with the body, thinking that we really have a body, then what did he do? He took it through the parts. He took it through the whole. Th- took us through the process of origination and dissolution, saying if you really have a body, then it should be really findable. And likewise, if you really have a mind, and the mind you think you really have is certainly one that is samsaric, subject to mental evictions and so forth, then it should be possible to find it. But for this then, once again, uh, the task here is to be able to hold in mind, and it's a subtle maneuver. It's more subtle than shamatha, of course, and I'm following straight classical sonkaba here, to be able to hold in mind, when you think my mind, and you do so in a reified sense, taking your mind very seriously, something that's really there, by its own nature, that you have, that torments you sometimes. Oh, my mind torments me. 
My mind is, my, I'm really upset. My mind is so agitated, right, etc. We're talking about something that seems very real, that has causal efficacy, that really beats us up at times, or sometimes is a nice neighbor. But the idea here in this close application of mindfulness of mind is to hold in mind your own reified sense of my mind, holding that in mind, what Tsongkhapa would call the gakcha, the object to be refuted, and then scrutinize that to see whether it exists at all. So, he has very few verses here. So we start with verse 102. And he starts with the whole issue of location. That is, if the mind is real, if the mind is real, if anything's real, a spirit, a ghost, anything, a galaxy, an elementary particle, anything, if it's real, exists by its own inherent nature, it should be someplace. It should exist someplace. And so this mind, you go to verse 102, the mind, and he just says point blank, just, okay, this is the way it is, but now not as dogma, but to be investigated. The mind is not located in the sense faculties. So just for starters, so the sense faculties. Well, there are five, he's referring to five sense faculties. If we bring in this in the 21st century, You've got a visual cortex back here. You have the auditory cortices on on the side. You have a couple of olfactory lobes. I don't know exactly where they are, but I know there are two of them. Yeah, quite sure, two of them. And then we have the the parts of the brain associated with taste, with the gustatory. And then, of course, just a a host, a whole field of neurons that provide us with, that, that, how do you say, act as a sensory basis for tactile sensation, right? And so we have these, these various forms of the aspects of the nervous system, parts of the brain. And in the 21st century, we'll say these are the physical sense faculties, independence upon which visual perception, auditory, and so forth arise. And his first point is that the mind that arises independence upon, or the the six modes of consciousness, uh, or simply the mind, because we're there focusing citta, the mind, he says, is not located in in any of the sense faculties which means nowhere to be found in the brain or the skin or the, the neurons in your gut or the neurons in your heart. Uh, there are neurons in various interesting places about the body, let alone nerve endings throughout much of the body. Um, but the mind is not located in any of those. And why? Why does he say this? Because there's no evidence that the mind is located. If you look at those sense faculties, whether contemplatively or scientifically, so here's actually a congruence either look at it objectively or subjectively, do you find the mind in any of this physical sense faculties? And the answer is no. Uh, so this is why, and I'm, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but this is why I find it exasperating that people keep on saying it is, it is, it is, saturates the media with no evidence whatsoever, but because it's said so often, everybody just starts believing it. It's a really creepy propaganda, and it's beneath science. Science deserves better than that. Science has a, ro- a, a noble lineage for 400 years, rather than little, letting little cheap shots like this slip in and go unchallenged. So that's it. It's out of my love for science that I had such a passion about this, and not because I, I, I denigrate science at all, which I absolutely do not. But sloppy silence, sh- science, sure. Just like sloppy Buddhism. I think I've been a bit critical of that too. Do you recall a chocolate-covered turd? I think that's a bit critical. Okay. So the mind is not located in the sense faculties. If you think it is, good. Demonstrate. Show some evidence of any kind. First person, third person, or anybody. 
So for starters, not located in the sense faculties, nor in form and other sense objects. So it's not in anything you see, not in, the, in my case, the computer right in front of me, not in the sounds, not in the smells, not in the taste, and so forth. Nowhere to be found there. So the, the objects being out there that we experience in the surrounding environment, and nowhere is the mind located in between. Okay? Well, we've kind of looked at that already, but in a very limited fashion. When I asked, so I'm looking over the now, at, again, I get burgundy. It looks like burgundy. The color of Elizabeth's uh, blouse there. Uh, so the color that I see, is it in the molecules that constitute her blouse? The answer is no. Not from a neuroscientific perspective or a physicist's perspective. The molecules aren't red. The photons aren't red. And no part of my brain turns red. So the, the image, the color, the quality of red is, of course, not mine, but it is a mental kind of event. And it's, and it's quite clear. It's not in here, not out there, not in between. So would that not imply that red does not inherently or really exist at all? Well, he's now moving into a much bigger, a bigger realm, and that is the mind itself, simply the mind. Not inside the head, not outside the head, not in between the two. So he summarizes the mind is not found inside, nor outside, nor anywhere else. If it were real, you think it would be findable. So the next, in the next verse he says, that which is not in the body, nor anywhere else, nor intermingled, somehow a blending of the two, nor somewhere separate, is nothing. doesn't exist. If, you can't, if it's not anywhere, it's kind of like, I don't know, unicorns? I don't know whether they exist now, but they don't seem to. If you look for them, then if unicorns really exist, you should be able to find them. Or yetis? Maybe they exist, but you'd think they would have shown up by now. You know, at least to get a social security number. You know, so they could be legitimate. I don't know. So, nowhere to be found, therefore not existent. And then he's got a real clincher. He, he really throws these things in, just when you kind of think you're getting into the flow of it, okay, I'm getting the hang of this. And then he says something like this. I'm going to read the whole, the whole verse. It's a very short verse, 103. That which is not in the body, nor anywhere else, nor intermingled, nor somewhere separate, is nothing. Therefore, therefore is very important. Therefore, Sentient beings are, by nature, liberated. You didn't see that one coming. Unless you'd memorized this text already. You didn't see that one coming. I don't think so. I didn't. Therefore, sentient beings are, by nature, liberated. Well, kind of makes sense. I, he did say, therefore. What keeps us in samsara? Why are we here? Why are we suffering? Why do we, yeah, why are we suffering? Uh, because of our minds. You know, the mind that is the impure mind, the mind that is dominated by mental afflictions, that creates karma, that propels us from lifetime to lifetime. The mind, all dhammapada, all phenomena are preceded by the mind, issue forth from the mind, and consist of the mind. Boy, the mind must be really important in Buddhism, right? But then if you can't find it anywhere, this, this samsaric mind that torments us and so forth and so on, if it doesn't exist, and if it's the mind, the samsaric mind, that is the thing that keeps us in samsara. And if it doesn't exist, therefore, by nature, you're not in samsara. And by nature, therefore, you're liberated. In one stroke. Well, does any really cool parable come to mind? Cool, huh? 
the beggar, the beggar prince coming, home, com coming to the minister's house. And the minister immediately recognizing him, knowing he's already liberated from being a beggar because he never was a beggar, knowing that he's already of royal lineage and is suitable to be put on the throne right now. But the young, the young man, the so-called beggar, doesn't recognize that. So he says, good, where are you from? Where are you from? What's your history? How did you become a beggar? If you're really a beggar, then you should have a real history. Right? And if you can't find it, if there was no point at which you became a beggar, if you have no history, no childhood as a beggar, then if you have no history as a beggar, then you have no present as a beggar, and of course no future as a beggar, therefore you're not a beggar. Welcome home, here's the throne. And you're by nature liberated. It's so strange. It is really like that cage out in the Sahara. The mind creates its own cage and then throws away the key and then screams, bloody murder, I'm in suffering, I'm in suffering. Right? So interesting. So if we consider that this, this line of inquiry, it's not just reasoning. I think it gets a bit arid, a bit too conceptual, a bit too locked up in the head when we confine it to thinking and debating and talking and talking and thinking more about and thinking more and more and more. Uh, at some point, it really has to go into meditation, right back to your experience, to investigating when you think I have a mind that is deluded, that is prone to anger, suffering, and all of that, good, bring it to mind and now see does it really exist or not, or is it simply a self-imposed kind of punishment. And if you see, even gain some glimmering into the total absence, the total absence of any real samsaric mind, any, really, any real mind of my own, my mind. You see its total absence, and you see the emptiness of mind. Emptiness is synonymous with nirvana. Shunyata, nirvana, two words for the same reality, ultimate reality, right? Two are the same. So to realize the third noble truth is to realize emptiness. To realize emptiness, perfection of wisdom, is to realize nirvana. Therefore, if you realize the shunya nature of your own mind, you've realized liberation. And you've realized a liberation, a nirvana, an emptiness that was already there. Because, of course, your mind doesn't become empty simply by investigating it. It was already empty, which means it was already, by nature, free. So in a way, it, looks, it makes liberation look very close not something you know, many lifetimes distant and how much merit do we need to accumulate and so forth. When nirvana is simply the nature of your own mind, the, the, the empty nature of your own mind, and your mind is already empty of inherent nature, then how far away can liberation be, nirvana be? So we can come at it cognitively, exactly in this way, and we can also come at it more pragmatically. This, this theme runs throughout all of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. And that is for those who are more cognitively inclined. Well, he just, he just served up a big dish there in just two verses. But we find, especially in the Pali Canon, but elsewhere as well, another way of approaching nirvana is primarily the pragmatic aspect. Give up all attachment, all grasping. Give up all attachment grasping. It's pragmatic. It's not a big head trip. It doesn't take powerful investigation, investigation. It's pragmatic. 
give up all grasping and all attachment. And then that's the way. That's the way to liberation. So Shandadeva, I think it's in his first chapter. And I can't quote it exactly. It's, it's, it, would be, it would probably take me three minutes to find it. So I won't take that time right now. But he said, releasing everything at once. Just releasing all attachment. Just, I think it's le tongwa or, some, or, or tongwa, something like that. But just like the little girl releasing the handful of, handful of balloons. Just, okay, I give them all up. All up, bye, bye, there they all go. That sense of just instant, total, <coughs> total release of every object of attachment. My body, my mind, my personal identity. As well as everything that I own, either literally like a computer, or my as in spouse, family, nation, religion, religious community, and so forth and so on. Everything that I identify with grasp onto, am attached to. He said, instantly, releasing everything is nirvana. So once again, it doesn't look like it's so distant. Not so distant. Just like for the prince, he didn't have to go to king school. He didn't have to go through a whole detoxification program to learn how that he really is, you know, like long, long therapy. That you're not really a beggar, you're not really a beggar, let's talk about this, let's analyze it, and so forth. He didn't have to go through a whole detoxification program of his notion of being a beggar, and then he didn't have to get a whole royal education, and, you know, you really are a king, believe me, really, I'm serious, and so forth. It was, bam, realizing the emptiness of his being a beggar in that instant, then he recognized who he was. What's left over? What was left over when he recognized, when he clean, cleared away the veils of grasping onto his identity as, as a beggar? Just clearing that away, what was left was then the glimmering of an earlier memory, mindfulness, of who he actually was. Because the amnesia didn't get down to his marrow, it didn't get down to the core, and it completely obliterate his memory of being the prince that they had, had, he had been, let's just say, several, just several years earlier. It was just heavily covered over. Right? But in the instant that he cleared away those veils by recognizing who he wasn't, that's what's left over immediately became apparent, and then instantly he was put on the throne. So it's a very interesting juxtaposition. I think I'll end here. It's a very interesting juxtaposition of these two themes that run through multiple schools of Buddhism, and that is, is enlightenment gradual or sudden? Right? And we find this in, in Theravada. It's largely, largely gradual. Read the Visuddhi Magga. That's a long, gradual, very intricate path. On the one hand, on the other hand, Bahia gets it in one paragraph. And the Gulukpa tradition, the Lam Rim, the great Lam Rim, I mean, it's a masterpiece of sequence, of path, of path, of path. And yet in the Gulukpa tradition, as in other traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, there are those individuals, they just get it. Kamachame Rinpoche, uh, the author of a large volume that I've translated most of, uh, under the titles Basic Path to Freedom and Naked Awareness, uh, consummate scholar, great scholar, and in the text that I translated, lays out step by step, here's the path. Here's the path. Preliminaries, lays them out in detail. And then into brief uh, foray into stage regeneration. Genresi. Then, then marching through Shamata, Vipassana, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and right through Dzogchen to you know, rainbow body. Very sequential. Very much of a path. On the one hand. On the other hand, there was Mingyur Doje. And Mingyur Doje was a boy that took birth when Kamachama Rinpoche was already a, an accomplished master, renowned, 
for his erudition and his realization. And this little tool showed up, Mingyu Doji. And this child was just naturally liberated. He was, he was already awake. He, he, just, he, was, he, was, he was an awakened being from the time he was a child. And Kamachame Rinpoche recognized that. And then at the same time recognizing, although you really either have extremely profound realization or else you're simply a Buddha, and okay, let's not worry about the details there, but here's a person of incredibly deep realization in the, in the body of a child. And so what did he do? Well, something not unique but quite interesting took place between the two of them is Kamachamerimache wanting to train this child, bring this child into the 17th century, into the current of the guru lineage, and so that he can really pass on the lineages, the transmissions, the empowerments, and so forth. Then Kamachamerimache then took him on as his disciple. Right? Good. I mean, he's a senior, senior lama, realization, all of that. So quite naturally, you find a precious tuku, then you offer them the guidance to bring them in. Just like great geishas will still, you know, great, great, great lamas in the Galupa tradition who pass away, they'll still be brought through the, through the geishi training, most likely, the tenure. But they'll have it collapsed down instead of 25 years, maybe 10 years. But they'll still get a refresher course, right? And so that's what Kamachamerimuchi was doing with his Mingyu Doji, is, okay, you're going to be an incredibly fast student, but I want to download the transmission from the 17th century here, because he was a you know, great vessel of Dharma. So he's pouring the transmissions and so forth into this child. But what makes the inter- relationship interesting is the child had such profound, intuitive, spontaneous wisdom that the child was the guru for, the, for, the, for his guru. Because he was just teaching straight, you know, right, right from his own wisdom. Spontaneous. So it was a guru-disciple relationship. It went both ways. Right? So, what I've met at least one individual like that. And I spent one hour with this person at the end of the hour then said, please be my lama. I've never done that in my life. And that was Kandola. Kandola, who lives in Dharamsala. I had the opportunity to just, just, I thought it was just going to be meeting and get a head blessing. Um, But I did have the audacity to ask ask her to give some teachings. And after her saying, no, no, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, and I kept on pushing, you know, more than I do, (laughs) you know, uh, then she did. And what flowed was... um, it's like mirac- miraculous. It was just, I'd never seen anything like it. It's really me too. Uh, because it was just like nectar. Absolutely spontaneous. Very, very deep. Full of light. And punctuated with laughter. Which is just this, like, dakini laughter. That was just like, a, like the tingling of bells. I mean, it was just, it was, it was beautiful. It was simply, the teachings were beautiful. You know. But they were so deep. And there were just about five of us in the room and her teachings went to all of us, just to our heart, immediately. And all of us just went up one by one with no consultation amongst us. And we just one by one, we each asked her to be our lama. So it was a little bit reminiscent. It's a, it's a, it's a stretch, but nevertheless, I'll say it. The five disciples of the Buddha. You know, they simply rose to meet him. But after he gave the teachings, you know, boom, there they were. They hadn't been his disciples before. They were more like comrades. But... Um, so there it is. So if you'd like to meet someone, she's happily still quite young, Kandula, living in Dharmzala, quite young. Thir- I still think in her 30s, maybe late 30s. But in terms of spontaneous wisdom flowing forth and with uh, just extraordinary purity, extraordinary, absolutely exceptional purity, she is a very 
precious being. So Namo to Kandala. If you have an opportunity to meet her, to receive teachings from her, I really recommend it. And she has tremendous guru devotion for His Holiness Dalai Lama. Really, quite, quite extraordinary. There's nothing about her that's not extraordinary. Hola, so let's meditate. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And making a point of letting your breath continue to flow in its natural rhythm without any deliberate modification of any kind. Experiment, if you will, with a gentle vast breathing. Letting your belly expand quite naturally with each inhalation. without forcing at all, just let it be. But then as you breathe out, with just a minimum of effort, 
hold that roundness of the belly. But again, let the breath flow out completely without forcing it out. Just let it flow out until the next breath flows in and you feel the belly expand a little bit, but still holding that roundness as you, as you breathe out. Letting your eyes be at least partially open, direct the full force of mindfulness to the space of the mind and its contents. Observe the mind with the unflickering, unwavering flame or light of awareness itself. And like looking into the body and identifying specific organs, blood, tissue, and so on, we look into the space of the mind. We observe events that are said to belong to the mind, to be
be parts of the mind, aspects of the mind, functions, properties of the mind. Thoughts, images, memories, emotions, desires, dreams, all occurring in the mind, produced by the mind, consisting of the mind. You have only one mind. One body, one mind, one person. So with the power of retention, the power of mindfulness, hold in mind your sense, your concept, that which you grasp onto as your mind. And see if you can find it. You may make quick work of trying to find the mind and the body because it's so obviously not there. And obviously not in objects, not obviously not in between. But is your mind this one mind that you have, this samsaric mind that torments you, gladdens you, bores you, can you find it here in the space of the mind? Is it anywhere to be found among any of the individual events arising in this space or in all of them collectively or anywhere else? Seek out that which you grasp onto and reify as my mind, your mind.
your mind grows still, all the activities of the mind, the snow and the snow globe, if all the activities of the mind subside, the mind grows quiet. Do you still have a mind? And if so, what are its qualities? And how is it that the mind has thoughts, images, and so on? Investigate the mind in terms of the whole and its parts and attributes. If you do have a mind, and it's a conditioned phenomenon, arising independence upon causes and conditions,
At what point and in what way does the mind arise? What are its factors of origination? When you look for how this truly existent and inherently real mind comes into being, how does it happen? Do you ever observe it? If upon careful scrutiny you can't find your mind, this reified object, well then turn to the components of the mind. Anything that comes up, a thought, an image, a memory, examine it closely. Does that mental event exist by its own inherent nature? Does it have attributes? Apply the whole and parts analysis to anything that arises in the space of the mind. Is it really there? And that includes mental impulses such as anger, desire, craving, fear, sadness. Does anything here stand up to such critical ontological analysis, looking for the essential nature that exists in and of itself, examine closely.
observe right down to the most elemental constituents of the mind that you can identify. The most fleeting thought, the surge of an emotion, or simply a moment of consciousness. To each of these events, no matter how brief, to each of them not have their own attributes. Can any of them be identified, found, in terms of their own intrinsic nature, independently of our conceptual designation of them? The mind itself is empty. And if all that arises in the mind is empty, consisting nothing other than empty appearances, if even the single moments of cognition are empty, then it's all empty. Where the mind presumably was, there is only emptiness. And emptiness is nirvana. simply waiting to be unveiled.
Guruan Shantideva's soliloquy, his internal meditation, which he shared with us in the Bodhicharvatara. At one point, he addresses his own mental afflictions, his own kleshas. And I, I haven't memorized the verse. Verse chapter, chapter 4 or 5. When he fully confronts them, he kind of stares them down and does not fuse with them, does not identify with them. It's, it's almost as if he taunts them and says, now that I've seen you, now where will you go? Where will you go? Just by that, by not reifying our own mental afflictions and by not identifying with them, they become powerless. Very wonderful strategy. Oh, Lasso. One written question here. Let's see what's up. From Chudina. You mentioned last week that there are two kinds of composites are being like a mob in space. Oh, yeah. One is in space, the other one's in time. Yeah, so a sequence. A sequence. The, the flow of consciousness or the flow of being angry and there's a continuum of being angry. So anything that's stretched out in time uh, like five minutes, that's a composite in time, spread out over time, or a mob that's all there at once, but has many simultaneous components. Yep. That was easy. That looked good. Okay. There's one here I actually have to admit I haven't read because I was meditating most of yesterday and didn't do much reading. Uh, but let's see if there's something juicy here. So here's a comment. Uh, you said that when the counterpart sign arises, this is from a couple of days ago, when the counterpart sign arises, initially it will be hard to sustain our focus on it for a long time, so it will disappear. This is Buddhaghosa, so there's no reason to quote me, because I'm just carrying the goods. I'm the secretary here. Uh, thus, this corresponds to absence of mindfulness. Yeah, that is, if this is, um, if you've achieved shamatha, and there it is, yes. Uh, I, and that is my assertion. So I am making an assertion here is if you're just resting there, you, you had the counterpart sign, you had something to attend to, but then you lost it, then you're resting in absence of mindfulness. Stage of Jujum Lingva's teachings. But in order to achieve shamatha all over again on the counterpart sign, and to achieve fully achieve the verse jhana, we cannot just dwell in the substrate, quite so. Rather, awareness must be inverted in upon itself. No, that's not true. Okay? And that is if you're, going to, if you're going to start all over again on the counterpart sign, you do not invert your consciousness in upon itself. You go back to the, you go back to the practice and you re-invite. You go back to the practice to re-invite that counterpart sign. Get it and then develop a relationship so you can sustain it. So it's a different, it's a different strategy. I've not seen, again, I'm just expressing the limitations of my knowledge. I've not seen anywhere in the Pali Canon or the Theravada tradition um, this, a, a practice once you've achieved access to the first jhana, of then inverting your awareness, the bhavanga right in upon bhavanga. But it's anomalous. It's a bit, um, you get mixed messages. Because on the one hand, uh, the Buddhaghosa the Buddha suggests it's like the little baby falling back on its bum, so it kind of, it's like kind of relaxation, just hanging out. And it's said to be like deep sleep, uh, when you're also resting in the bhavanga. At the same time, throughout the Theravada tradition, when they have this, this, and you'll recall this, uh, the brightly shining mind, the brightly shining mind, and you say, what is the referent of the brightly shining mind? It is the bhavanga. So they are suggesting it's by nature luminous. At the same time, it doesn't always appear to be presented in that way. 
But if you're following the classic Theravada trajectory of achieving access of the first jhana and then moving right ahead and achieving full jhana, then you do not invert your awareness in upon itself. You seek out that counterpart sign, and then in a manner of speaking, you achieve shamatha on that. And that, so you stabilize it, you hold it, and then you can, and th- so you can hold it for like 24 hours at a stretch. And then you've achieved this, um, the, the actual state of the first jhana. Um, so does this mean that upon enter- encountering and losing the counterpart sign, one should dwell in the vavanga, or substrate consciousness, or in other words, rest in his experience of shamatha until the counterpart sign reappears, which is then the, meditative, the meditator uh, re-engages with it. I don't think that it simply appears all by itself. Just by hanging out in the vavanga, will the counterpart sign associated with air elements just kind of pop up and say, howdy? don't think so. I don't think so. Because bear in mind, there are ten kasinas. There are ten kasinas. These are classic approaches in the, the many, many discourses the Buddha gave on the actual achievement of jhana. And so, for example, you, you can achieve, and I think you'll recall this, you can achieve shamatha by way of the earth element. Remember that? So you start out with, you remember, your clay pizza? So you have the preliminary sign, which is a physical object, and you focus on that until you become so familiar with it, so immersed in it, that you can go into a little, a little meditation hut that's dimly lit, and because you've been gazing, I mean, just fixating on it, the mental image will arise, from, based upon emerging from or kind of catalyzed by your visual image. And then you focus on that acquired sign. And there's no mystery about how that comes about because you've been gazing at it so much visually. And so then when, you, when it stabilizes and you can really sustain your attention on that acquired sign, which is kind of an afterimage, a mental afterimage of what you're looking at visually, then you take that all the way through until the counterpart sign of the earth element arises. Now the difference there, if you might, you might recall, is that the acquired sign is really basically a mental rep- a replica of what you're seeing visually, which will have the distinctive qualities of your own particular clay pizza, right? What color was the earth? I mean, it has to be some color. And so, well, that is going to be that color. But it gets very interesting. There's an outstanding book that's now out of print by Vajiranyana, very, very fine Sri Lankan scholar, uh, wrote a book, Buddhist Meditation Theory and Practice. I was so fortunate to get a copy when I lived in Sri Lanka. Um, about 31 years ago. Uh, he lays this out really, superb scholarship, and lays this out in quite some detail. And he said, now when the counterpart sign arises, like as, as of the earth element, he said, now this is the, what he calls it? He calls it the conceptual quintessence, as I recall, or something very similar to that. But like the very quintessence of earth element throughout the universe. Because it's stemming from the, from the form realm and not your backyard where you gathered the earth, Right? So now, and earth element, of course, doesn't mean dirt. It doesn't mean a planet. It means solidity, firmness. But you've now captured the form realm quintessence. And it might not be too much of a stretch to say the archetype, the rupadatu archetype of earth element, solidity and firmness. And this is it for the whole universe. I mean, distant galaxies, they are also composed of the earth element, those that are solid. I think they all are. Um, in which case, you, you nailed, you have now acquired, you're focusing on the essence of earth element wherever it appears in the universe, right? But again, if, when it first arises, it's going to be very subtle. So then if you say, well, I'll just sit here in the Bhavanga and, take, and, and wait until the earth element counterpart sign comes back. Well, why would it? You know, Because why, why not the air? Or why, not the, why not fire? Why not water? And then there are other casinas as well, corresponding to the primary colors, for example. Um, so no, I think it's not just waiting for it to come back, 
but it's kind of like get, getting the momentum up, focusing on the acquired sign, getting the momentum up, and then, and then leaping off and seeing if you can once again entice or arouse or invoke or evoke, evoke out of the form realm into the space of your consciousness, that counterpart sign, and then get a lock on it. So it's really very high-tech. Not high-tech like Vajrayana, but it's still pretty high-tech. And I, when I was living in Sri Lanka, I heard uh, from somebody who, I think it was perhaps even my teacher, Valangonda uh, Andanamaitreya, maybe him, or maybe it was somebody, uh, I stayed at another hermitage before I, I lived with him. But someone told me that on the road from Colombo to Kandy, now this is again, it's 31 years ago, almost 32 years ago, uh, on the road from Colombo to Kandy, I was told that there was one hermitage that pretty much you couldn't get into because they were really serious and they don't want to be bugged by tourists or people just dropping in for a chat. And what I was told is the monks there were really serious practitioners of jhana and they were achieving them. That's what I was told. But I was also told that it was exceptionally rare. By my own teacher, he did say that. Really rare. Because uh, almost everybody was going vipassana, for vipassana with no jhana and no access. So there it is. So, <coughs> so that's that. Then regarding not conflating practices of mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, and awareness of awareness, what's the difference between conflating the practices of mindfulness of breathing and settling the mind in its natural state, that is sloppy practice, and mindfulness of breathing, a sangha style, where one attends to the mind by way of mindfulness of respiration? Well, just for starters, you're no longer practicing shamatha. When you're up there beyond sta- the fourth stage, when you're in the final, twi- final 12, it's not shamatha. you already nailed shamatha. It's down. It's a done deal. And so this means that wherever you direct your attention, you are directing a unified mind, samadhi, collected, composed, altogether, totally collected. And so, so, so that's that, that would just be the first response. Um, but Buddha Dasa, Buddha Dasa, he was very, very, he wrote some very accessible pamphlets, little short booklets on Buddhism that was some of my first introduction to practice Buddhism way back when I visited the Tibetan monastery in Switzerland in, gosh, how many now? 1970. Uh, but quite quite renowned teacher in Thailand, and he wrote extensively about mindfulness of breathing. He took, uh, took shamatha very seriously, unlike the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, which pretty much marginalized it. And uh, he said he didn't call it mindfulness of breathing, that is, un- in, in some circumstances. He called it mindfulness with breathing. You might recall? Recall? And that is especially when you're moving into Vipassana territory. The, mindfulness, the, the, the breathing is there, is really like your vessel. Whereas your attention is probing into the jhana factors, into the rising of bliss, of happiness, and so forth and so on. So it's there, kind of your carrier. So you're, you're, you're applying mindfulness, now closely applying mindfulness to states of consciousness, mental factors, jhana factors. And the breathing really has to be in the background. So... So somewhat different. So again, you're not trying to achieve shamatha. Uh, so that's why, that's why I would say it would be a mistake to practice them simultaneously. And having said that, though, um, we, go, we can go back to the metaphor of Russian dolls. And that is when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, if you're practicing not only mindfulness, but what's the other mental factor? Introspection. <clears throat> then, unless you've already achieved stage eight, way up there, in which, place, in which case then you don't need introspection any longer. It's done its job, you don't use it, because uh, it would then be just interference, right? Uh, because neither subtle excitation or, ex- or laxity arise any longer. But up to that point, 
then you are. You're multitasking to some extent. Because while your mindfulness is focusing on the breath, introspection is probing in, poking in, so to speak, on the mind. How are you doing? Lax? Dull? Agitated? Thoughts arising? Not arising? So you're doing that, which means, in a way, there's at least a little fragrance of settling the mind in its natural state. Because that's what settle, But settling mind in its natural state has the mind in the center, in the center ring of the circuit, so to speak, uh, the central domain, whereas the mindfulness of breathing, obviously it's peripheral. But in the midst of all of that, if you've just been practicing mindfulness of breathing, let's say for 24 minutes, and then I, as soon as you get off the cushion, I ask Nicola, uh, have you been conscious or unconscious during the last 24 minutes? Hopefully you can <laughs> give an answer with some confidence. <laughs> if you say, I'm not quite not sure, I'm not quite sure, then probably intense dullness was setting in. Um, but you're a good meditator, so your answer would be yes. Your answer would be yes. Yes, I, I, I know with certainty that I've been conscious continually since I began the session, which means that throughout that whole 24 minutes, or at least significantly, a lot of the time, uh, there had to be awareness of awareness. Otherwise, you can't recall something you never knew in the first place. So that's where the Russian dolls come in. That in a way, the outer one includes the inner one. But when you're settling the mind, when you're really in the flow, really in the flow, let, let, let's push it up. Let's push it up to stage seven or eight in settling the mind in its natural state. Then the body may simply fade out altogether. and You may, may have no awareness at all of the in and out breathing. And even before then, it's appearing, but you're not deliberately giving any attention to it. So... The, rush, the outer Russian doll is there, but you're really not giving it any attention. And then, I'll, I'll say what you know I'm going to say, and that is when you go right into the nucleus, into awareness of awareness, and you're in the zone, you're just there in that stillness, luminous and cognizant, and that occupies your attention. Then if thoughts, images, and so forth come up, well, they will for a while, but you don't deliberately get it, give any attention to them. So now you're in the innermost doll, and the outer stuff is appearing, including hearing a jet fly overhead or what have you. It'll appear, but it doesn't draw you away. Okay? So there it is. But by the time you get to stage eight, then each one is kind of really showing its full strength. And then if it's mindfulness of breathing, you are spot on in the breathing because you're not practicing introspection anymore. And likewise, in mindfulness and settling the mind, you're no longer aware of your body. And then likewise, stage eight, awareness of awareness. Well, that's, that's it. That's your full-time job, all there is to it. Good. Anything else coming up? Left hemisphere first. Anything coming up? Point of clarification, insight, revelation, observation. Yes, Danny. Microphone coming. So I have a question in regard to mental images and how that might relate to the acquired sign <coughs> should it arise at some point. Yeah. If I continue to practice after this retreat, or maybe yeah. in the in this last week, who knows? Yeah. But so I notice a clear distinction between you know images that I see, kind of in the waking state, and even in in the in a lucid dream, let's say, mm -hmm. or even in a non lucid dream, when you see images, they appear more real as if kind of in the regular waking state. Oh yes, um, quite so. Yeah. Right. For most people, unless you've already achieved shamatha, then. You can have evil, equal vividness both ways. Back, back to you. Go ahead. But um, in settling the mind of the t in its natural state, when I see mental images, I see them, but they don't appear as if I'm seeing kind of a, a physical image. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it, its form is different in, in some way. Mm 
And then also with the eyes closed, with mindfulness of breathing, you know, I sometimes see um, different colors and lights and, mm-hmm. and sometimes kind of see a little kind of crystallizing of a little orb of light, kind of not right underneath my nose. It's usually a little bit more in front. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't really kind of stay very solid. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, is the acquired sign more like an image that I might see with my eyes, or is it more like that image that arises in settling the mind in its natural state, or is it more like that kind of light that you see with your eyes closed when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing? Yeah. Of course, first of all, it's purely a mental image, not something you see with your eyes at all. The degree of vividness, sharpness, acuity, high resolution with which it appears actually varies from one person to the next when it first starts to arise. Uh, So it's more by context, uh, context that we are able to distinguish the acquired sign from every other image that might arise while you're practicing mindfulness of breathing. Now bear in mind, of course, there is no acquired sign. There is no such thing. The term doesn't apply to settling the mind or to awareness of awareness. It's only in this context, what what I've been teaching here, only for mindfulness of breathing, although it does, as I mentioned to Nicola, it comes up if you're practicing, if you decide to achieve. And this is, um, again, it's in Buddha Gosa, Path of Purification, where it shows different personality types. And for some personali- personality types, and it's a fascinating area, then earth element, water, fire, air, might be most appropriate, more so than mindfulness of breathing. You know? Or red, white, blue, yellow. You know, these are also, each of these, those are ten casinas. Um, and then there are two more in, in addition to that. Light and space. And those two can be meditative object for achieving shamatha. Um, but coming back just to the breath, so there it is. And the, the, the counterpart sign, when it finally arises, is actually the, same, the counterpart sign for the air element. Not just for breath, but air element. So that means now air as vayu throughout the entire universe. Motility, motion, energy. Yeah. So when the acquired sign arises, first of all, it will arise very sporadically, just once in a while. But, so the question, but here we have the questions. Kind of like, okay, we grill it to see, are you the real acquired sign or are you just, just a nuisance, you know, a distraction? And that is, first of all, the acquired sign will arise when you're very relaxed, very composed, the mind is clear and single-pointed. So one of your really good sessions. It won't arise when the mind is just filled with all kinds of rumination, this, that, and the other thing. That's just flotsam and jetsam. Right? Uh, so there's the first point. It arises when in your better sessions, when you're composed, you're relaxed, highly focused, there's the first point. Second point, it arises right where you are focusing. So I've not seen any references to the, to the acquired sign arising while focusing on the belly. Maybe somebody's referred to that. I've never seen it. We're following classic Theravada Buddha Gosa style here. You're focusing on the apertures of the nostrils. So it's right in that target area. I mean, not exactly on the tip of your nose, but right in that domain, right in front of you, nosish area, tip of the nose in front of you. Uh, so that's where it will appear. If it's off to the side someplace, then it's not the acquired sign. Um, so now we have two. And then three, it's going to appear repeatedly. And if not in the early phases, if not in exactly the same form, similar. You'll see a family resemblance, right? And it'll keep on coming. And it'll keep on coming in your really good sessions. And it won't occur in your poorer sessions. So it keeps on knocking on your door. And then as it keeps on coming again and again, what you'll find is it does start to gel to become more regular, more uniform. 
and it may just be a pearl. And then Buddha goes, he gives a whole list. You may go back to him. He's the authority, not me. But he gives a list, not a comprehensive list, but a good sampling. Rather like, if I can just jump off to a parallel, Dujum Lingba, when he gives us two and a half pages of Nyam, meditative experiences. That gives you a pretty good idea of the bandwidth from weeping with faith and reverence for the lamas to mind-numbing anguish and physical pain, you know, so, and such weird and all kinds of strange things in between. So it's not a comprehensive list, but it's a very good sampling. And that's, I think, what Buddha Gosa gives in the, in the Visuddhimagga, a nice sampling of the types of acquired signs that yogis in the centuries and centuries preceding him had reported. So there he was, a chronicler. Okay? Gives you a good idea, okay, this kind of sign. And so as the acquired sign keeps on cropping up, there it is, so you know when, you know where, you know that it'll be recurrent. It starts to be more and more crystallized into, okay, almost like forming, it can be more gelatinous or amorphous, and then gradually just crystallizing is the best word. And then it's going to become more and more continuous, and the more continuously you have really good sessions, the more continuously or repeatedly that will arise. Until after a while, there just won't be much doubt anymore. Uh, yeah, you again, yeah, you again, oh, yeah, you again. In which case, when you have that confidence, uh, then you say, okay, I think we're finished for the time being with the tactile sensations of the breath, the preliminary sign, time to now have mindfulness with breathing, that is, the breathing is off in the background, and now you're focusing your attention single-pointedly on that mental image, right? And, you'll, and that will be your image, and that will be, so that will be your object of, um, object of mindfulness until the counterpart sign arises and you actually achieve shamatha. Okay, is that clear? So, quick clarification. So, when you say mental image, mm-hmm. I guess what I'm kind of confused about is, is that mental image more like a mental image that I see during settling the mind in its natural state, or is it somewhat similar to that thing I described as kind of a, like the light that you see with your eyes closed that kind of crystallizes? More like the latter. More like the, the latter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mental image... But it will have, but it's going to be clearly inspired by things you've seen with your eyes. So it's clearly, clearly, it's rooted in. It stems from desire realm. And I find this interesting in physics. When you know, when, when physics goes into very abstract thought, uh, you know, the the qualities of elementary particles or photons traveling through space and so forth, uh, unless they make up just a totally new word like quark. Okay, I've never seen a quark myself. I think, as far as I know, it's just a brand new term. But so often we get words like field. Where does that come from? Farming, you know. Wave, where does that come? Swimming pools, oceans, you know. Particles, yeah, like, yeah, that little flick of my mind. I hate it when particles get my eye. You know, spin. Spin, that's the quality of elementary particles. Spin, yeah, that's what tops do. So it's interesting that, you, and then that each, each time they'll say, but it's, 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 not, it's not really spin. It's not the little, it's, it's not that. We're just using the word. And it's not really a field. And it's not, re- and so inspired by things in the desire realm, but they're trying to describe what's there when nobody's looking. Because particles with spin, with charge, um, you know, that's what you do on a football field or whatever. But they take ordinary terms and then use them in extraordinary ways that are suggesti- suggesting it exists out there independently of our experience. But unless you create a whole new word like quark, um, I mean, even consider black hole. You've all seen a black hole. It's, it's a hole with a light off, you know, and that's what you can't see. 
And that's what's out there when nobody's looking. You know? So it's quite interesting. And so similarly, well, we'll, we'll dis- the, the acquired sign is actually inspired by, based upon, experiences from the desire realm. But then this Vajjjana Jnana made quite a strong point of saying, when it comes to the counterpart sign, okay, then again, he'll give a list. It could appear like this, like this, like this. But he said, don't take any of these literally. Because anything that comes to your mind will stem from the desire realm, and this doesn't. So this comes from another dimension altogether. So you just have to be patient. And then when you see it, if you've gotten to the stage nine, you know, if you've gotten that far, and then finally you have these wonderful transition taking place, breaking through to you know, access to the first jhana, then there'll be a little doubt. And you say, oh, and now, how, now to the folks back home, when I should t- try to tell them what was it like when, the, when you experienced the counterpart sign, you're going to have to use words that they understand. And so you, were like, you won't say, well, it was kind of like a schmiffle, but stronger emphasis on schmorf and favalooza. You, know? <laughs> you can make words that only mean, make sense to you, but then they convey nothing whatsoever to anybody else. And if you say, I'm sorry, but you can't imagine it, okay, well, pretend. <laughs> you know? Give them something to work with. Some, give them something to work with. And in a way, this is very reminiscent of the many descriptions of Rikpa. Because one of the, 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 if one re- remembers one thing about Rikpa, is that it's beyond all conceptual elaboration. Whatever you think about it, it's wrong. It cannot be captured in thought. And yet large tomes by great scholars and contemplatives have been, been written about Rikpa. Right? Um, so all of these suggestive, inviting is more like an invitation rather than a description. Invitation, this is the direction to go to. Oh, yeah. So, enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow.